And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and if you love Manchester United or love to enjoy their misery, then this episode is for you. It's going to be a deep dive look at Manchester United. What's gone wrong? What might be going right? Question mark. Who needs to be moved on? Lots and lots of stuff to cover. And to do the heavy lifting on that front is Carl Anka of The Athletic. Carl, it's been a week. How you doing? Oof. <laughs> is that your official statement? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we are going to be focusing a lot on Man United and what is going on there. Up front, I wanted to run a theory about what's gone wrong by you, see what you think. Last season, United hit the restart strong. They finished third against uh, expectations. This happens while you're covering Southampton. You move to Manchester, and then things happen. Would you like to take a moment to apologize to Manchester United fans? No, I, well, I'd like to tell them all, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> That's... I want to take this opportunity to apologize to absolutely nobody. <laughs> <laughs> I told everyone the third place finish, uh, more so than any other league finish, deserved an asterisk mm-hmm. because uh, Manchester United's third place finish relied on not only them continuing the very good form they had before Project Restart happened, but also in giving more time for Paul Pogba and Marcus Rashford to return from injury. Mm. Uh, Manchester United finished third. It was 66 points. That's, I think, two more than uh, David Moyes' finish in the bad year that we all sort of forget about and was similar to uh, Louis van Gaal's finish in his second season where he was removed after he finished fifth. So um, it's a third place rather than a third place. (laughs) This is a much larger question, but since you've brought them up, like we do sort of forget, like I still can't tell you how many years Louis van Gaal managed Manchester United. It could have been one, it could have been 40. Uh, I think there's been so much turmoil that it's easy to, for people to get lost in the shuffle. Of the three managers that I can recall who have been there permanently before, like Gunnar Solskjaer, of David Moyes, Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho, do you feel like all of them were sort of unfairly maligned given what we know about the club now? Like I would say Mourinho was probably the leading candidate for the one who gets more blame than is maybe due, but I'm wondering if you think the same extends to Louis van Gaal and David Moyes. Um, David Moyes was never going to get there. Mm-hmm. He was way he was in way over his depth head, uh, and it says a lot that David Moyes never went for the job. He was simply told by Alex Ferguson he was having the job. Um, so, uh, you, have you ever watched Community? Yes. Yeah. So you know how Community season four is referred to as the gas leak year. Yes. Uh, well, that's that's how I refer to David Moyes at Manchester United, <laughs> the gas leak year of Manchester. United. Um, Louis Van Gaal <laughs> fascinates me. Greatly because he was very, he was going for a very pronounced, very esoteric style of football right. that I don't think you'll see at a big club ever again. You'll never, I don't know what he was aiming for 
and I don't know what that end goal was. Uh, and on some days, part of me wishes he had more time so he could get it, just so I could see what it looked like. But then other days, I remember how boring it was to watch that Manchester United side play. I remember he let, he got rid of Raphael. I remember what he did to Di Maria and what he did to Depay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that he also got rid of my beloved Danny Welbeck. So no, 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 no apologies for Louis van Gaal. And I'll, I'm never, ever going to apply any form of revisionism to Mr. Mourinho. I think Mourinho was absolutely, I think, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and David Moyes are in over their heads and we're never going to get there and be Manchester United quality. And Louis van Gaal and Mourinho are managers who I'd call past it. Mm-hmm. So how do you think then Manchester United can get out of that cycle? We're already jumping into the very deeper issues here. Of <laughs> It seems like in over their head, manager appointed who has the reputation but is going for an esoteric style. And then the same thing with Jose Mourinho and then Ole Gunnar Solskjaer maybe in over his head. It feels like we've got a, a sort of ABBA pattern forming right now. Yeah, uh, they're going to they're going to lurch from feast and famine until something <laughs> clicks, until yeah. someone out there understands what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I, it reminds me, and this is quite weird to compare them to Newcastle, but in, in Newcastle in a, a different state, but with a lot less money. So Newcastle, they have their own in Mike Ashley. Mike Ashley um, doesn't really want to leave. Uh, so Newcastle are in this very, you know, comfortable but chaotic limbo where maybe they got a new owner, maybe they'll get a better manager. Sometimes they spend money, sometimes they don't spend money. But also it doesn't look like from anyone higher up than perhaps the manager or some players, the man, you know, the very powerful people at Newcastle don't really seem to matter if they finish 12th or if they finish 15th because, you know, You've just secured Premier mm-hmm. League football. Uh, and while it's slightly different for Manchester United because they're in a different ballpark, you do get the feeling there is no real difference to finishing between second or finishing fourth. Yeah. Uh, I, obviously, there are some complications when you consider, you know, if Manchester United go back-to-back seasons without Champions League qualification, that's a problem. But I think it can be quite hard when you look at Manchester United very clearly and you look at what they're doing and the decision-making they're trying to do. It can be quite hard to believe people, very high-ranking people at Manchester United, and, and I'm saying very, very high-ranking. I'm talking about the the real yes or no decision makers, not the quite nice people who work a bit lower down. I don't think it matters whether or not they finish second or third. I don't think it. I think you know, what's really weird about that the season that just finished is Manchester United finished in third place, right? They finished in third place. The team that finished in second is Manchester United's great geographical rival, Manchester City. And the f- team that finished in first was their great historical rival in Liverpool. And yet the overwhelming feeling of that third place finish was relief. That is accurate and does seem to be the way it's been presented. It feels like then that relief becomes, and just wait till next season. We're already seeing that now with the failure to acquire Jaden Sancho. But next year, they're going to look really hard at him. Next year, they're going to look really hard at a center back. Is that then, do you think there is some truth to that? Do you think there is actually an idea of, but next year we really are going to get it right? Or do you kind of buy into the idea that it's stringing people along because they're okay with finishing third and fourth every year, provided they're in or around the Champions League spots in March? Uh, I, I, 
what's the saying? Never, never assuming uh, malice when incompetence will do. <laughs> I, I think, I think there is some. I think what you have at Manchester United is a lot of people who, nah, maybe, maybe not a lot of people. I think there are people in very powerful positions at Manchester United who start conversations with "This is Manchester United." Yeah. Without putting proper thought into what that sentence means, or how "This is Manchester United" became a sentence of heft. And how it means something. So um, one has to look at this recent 20-minute conversation Patrice Ever did on, on Instagram before the start of the season where Ever uh, said something along the lines of Manchester United aren't particularly good at player recruitment right now because they tend to send lawyers rather than quote-unquote football people. Now, um, again, this is quite difficult to pass because you know, I'm not going to pretend Patrice Ever isn't acting in some form of self-interest and isn't hoping he might one day be integrated into something later on down the line. But there is this argument that there is a lack of quote unquote football people from high ranking positions. So I think how many times we've done this podcast, and I mentioned the lack of director of football, at Manchester United, um, that becomes more and more apparent as time goes on. So when you look at player trading, Manchester United is currently run, you know, Ed Woodward signs off on a lot of things. And then there's Matt Judge who helps out with transfers. Um, when you look at, how Manchester United conduct transfers and, and who does that, who conducts that business. There are noticeable gaps and things that other clubs don't do, which confuses me. I never quite, whenever I see things that are done by Manchester United, I never quite, um, I never quite believe Manchester United are doing it because they believe it's the best thing for Manchester United. I either get the sense they're doing it because other clubs are doing it or I'm getting a sense they're doing it because it's the opposite of what they did last season. So what do you, do you have an example of that or an example of like what they might be trying to emulate? So, okay. Uh, really good example. Um, we only got on Solskjaer's first transfer win, summer transfer window last season. So, you know, you, you had the Mourinho season three implosion. Uh, there was all this conversation. Marino gets removed. Manchester United go, we're going to get interim football manager. Then we're going to get a permanent football manager. And we're also going to get a director of football. What they do is they get an interim manager. They turn him into the permanent manager. And they say, we actually don't need a director of football because the relationship with Solskjaer is so good. And that was a case of, oh, you, you took a shortcut there. Uh, and a really good example of doing something because it was the opposite of what happened last time was when you compare Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's first real summer transfer mark. He went out and bought Harry Maguire and he went out and bought Aaron Wan-Bissaka and there was this talk about how Manchester... And he went out and got Daniel James and there was this talk about how Manchester United wanted to get young, preferably British players that want to fight for the Manchester United shirt. It was this idea that we don't want to go out and buy um, known quantities like Alexis Sanchez anymore or Di Maria anymore. We don't want to get you know, Real Madrid-style Galacticos. We want to get hungry British proven players, which is an okay transfer strategy I don't believe you do. You did, Manchester United did that because Manchester United enjoy it. I believe they did it because they went, what's the opposite of what we did last time? Um, so last time you were on the show, I want to keep this line of thinking going. Last time we talked a lot about Southampton. That is who you were covering last year. Despite their start to the season, they are very much a club with a plan for how to move forward. Ralph Hasenhutl's, I believe, 700-point plan seems indicative of that. I think I just picture a club in which a lot of stuff is happening all the time and it generally makes sense. That's how I vi envision Southampton of like meetings all the time. There's high octane energy everywhere and they're always coming up with solutions. And I don't have that same view of Manchester United. You have a unique insight into both. I'm wondering how different, like how different the operations seem to be on a day to day basis between Southampton and Man United. 
Uh, well, I think it, it, one is size. So, uh, you know, Southampton reasonably can be. When you look at Southampton stuff, you have Raf Hassenhall, mm-hmm. who is the who is the manager, and he's probably quite close to the old school foot manager in that he wakes up at eight, gets there, has a meeting, does that, takes training, but you know he he takes training himself. Uh, he's also you know, very recently moved Southampton's under twenty three side and rebranded them a B side and moved them to another stadium that play on different dates compared to the senior team, so he can watch them as well. Uh, so there's really big oversight from Southampton. Um, Southampton do have a director of football. It's a gentleman called Matt Crocker. Um, so Matt Crocker's job is to take care of the club's interests in the medium to long term. And there's also another owner. Um, there's another chief executive on top of that who is uh, Martin Simmons. And he can sort of, he plugs into the conversations that Matt Crocker and Ralph Hasen was having. So uh, what we know from, what I know from Southampton is Ralph has more or less like a 10 commandments list as the players he wants. So there's certain attributes he's always looking for when he wants players. He preferably wants them um, quite athletic. He preferably wants them under age of 24. Uh, he wants them, you know, able to play a high pressing game. And then Matt Crocker will go out to find those players and whatnot using their all sort of scouting system. And then it falls onto Martin Simmons to sort of okay it in terms of budget. Um, and that's, pretty much how most modern day clubs work. Southampton are, I'm not going to use Southampton as a model of organization when they can be a little bit chaotic sometimes. Fair. Um, but uh, when you look at other clubs that have used the transfer window quite successfully, so another example is um, Everton right now. So Everton have Carl Ancelotti, football manager. They've got a head of recruitment who is uh, Marcel Brands, a Dutchman who used to be at PSV Eindhoven. Um, and then they have their owner, uh, the billionaire Farash Moroshi. Uh, my apologies on the pronunciation there. And that's the general setup for, I think, all but six clubs in the Premier League have some form of director of football or some form of person who looks after the club in a medium to long term and is responsible for the hiring of and scouting of managers and can be involved in player trading. So I, I'm using the word player trading rather than just transfers because player trading is also bring them in, bring them out, using loans, and also balancing things like um, contract extensions mm. as well. Um, uh, so you, know, you look, Arsenal have one, Liverpool have one, Manchester City have one, um, Tottenham Hotspur mostly falls to Daniel Levy, but he, you know, I, I wouldn't, I think everyone's sort of okay with it. Um, and the clubs that don't are, you know, West Ham because hilariously West Ham when they brought in Pellegrini Pellegrini was allowed to pick his own director of football um, Wolverhampton Wanderers Sheffield United Manchester United uh, and I think there are two others that don't have this sort of director of football role so there's just a little bit more I don't want to say disorganisation but overlap in roles mm-hmm. um, so sometimes you can imagine you know, rather than Solskjaer saying I need a player that can do XYZ go get them for me I think Solskjaer has a little bit more of a hands on role saying I want Jaden Sancho, I want this player, I want that player, go out and get them for me. And then it's up to Matt Judge and or Ed Woodward to try and make that happen. And from what we've seen this summer, they've not been particularly successful for reasons. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about those reasons for a moment. A, a big sort of talking point that I've seen tends to be, as you said, they're, they're not football men, they're not football brains, they're accountants, they're lawyers. That's Ever's allegation as well. My understanding then is that that sort of like leads them to see things in a very specific way. I can talk more about that, but I'd rather hear what you have to say about that. What do you think is the sort of limitation in the way they go about conducting their transfers? Uh, I, I there was uh, there's a fantastic piece on the FA right now from uh, Laurie Whitwell, mm-hmm. 
um, and Adam Crafton, which basically it charts the failed and uh, David Ornstein. It charts the failed pursuit of Jaden Sancho. Yeah. And there's a there's a wonderful little phrase in it. And basically, Manchester United were at the poker table expecting Borussia Dortmund to blink, not realizing Dortmund weren't at the table whatsoever. <laughs> Um, so obviously, you know, throughout the summer, Dortmund were very much of the opinion of Jaden Sancho cost 120 million to start the conversation, and if you don't put that money up front before August 10th, then it's done, game over. We're not, we're not doing this. Um, Manchester United were very much of the okay, all right, we'll see. You'll probably drop down the price, don't worry. Um, and then August 10th came and went. And Manchester United went, okay, so we're still cool, yeah? We can still do this and look down low. And Dortmund were very much of the opinion, no, why Why do you think we weren't taking it seriously? Um, the, my friend uses this analogy in, return, in regards to dating uh, as to uh, you thought you had the ball and you were going to score under the post, but it turns out you, you didn't have the ball in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, in that sometimes sometimes you can get very, you know, oh, I've got their phone number, yeah, we've been talking and texting, and the next day they're on Instagram with their real boo. And you realise you were you were just a distraction. Um, I think that happens. I think that happens sometimes to Manchester United. I think Manchester United are very much a club going. We are Manchester United. Everyone at some point or some level wants to talk and deal with us, which is true to an extent. I think at any point in time during the transfer window, there are fifty or so interesting parties in Manchester United. I think Manchester United still hold a heft and a sway and a gravitas that makes them not only interesting to a number of players that want to play at Manchester United, but also quite interesting as leverage for other players that want contract deals and other things at other places at Manchester United, um, which makes business quite difficult if you're not really attuned as to what's going on. I think what's also happening is Manchester United are caught in between two really, really difficult places. So you've, you know, there was this great, I'd say, destruction of a lot of Ferguson's great works um, that Solskjaer, when he came in, helped restore. So I think this is Solskjaer's big thing without getting too much into phone mysticism. is basically going, when I was at Manchester United and Ferguson was here, this is what we did. This is what we did. This is what we did. We did this. We had this. We had this. We had this. And you can see the tiny little things where he goes, we wore suits to home games. Or this is what our medical team did. Or this is how we had our team dinners, which is good. And this is probably why United had that little bounce when he was the interim manager, because Solskjaer's thing is restorative. He can make things what they used to be. But also bear in mind, Solskjaer left Manchester United in 2007. And is that really? Went, wow. Oh, yeah. As the reserve manager, he left in 2007. And even when you consider Ferguson's methods, Ferguson left in 2013, which means even if you're restoring things back to what they used to be, that means at best you are working mm-hmm. using 2013 methods in 2020. So when you look into further sort of this fabled analytics department or how their medical team operates or how their academy team operates and how they, you know, how the uh, under 23 players sort out what clubs they're going to go to on loan, it still feels quite, I don't want to use retrograde, but it does feel like a couple of years off the pace compared to market leaders. This episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Policy Genius, who remind you that it is Halloween this month. Policy Genius would like to mark the occasion by making something less scary, and that would be life insurance. Shopping for life insurance can be a daunting task, or at least seem like a daunting task, but Policy Genius makes it easy. They combine a cutting-edge insurance marketplace with help from licensed experts to save you time and money. Right now, you could save 50% or more by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance. When you're shopping for a policy that could last for more than a decade... 
those savings really do start to add up. Here's how it works. First, head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Policy Genius will then compare policies starting at as little as $1 a day. You might even be eligible to skip the in-person medical exam, which is always nice. No in-person things these days. Nobody wants that. Once you apply, Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. Nobody wants red tape either. So no in-person exam, potentially no red tape for sure. Uh, And the best part is they work for you, not the insurance company. So if you hit any speed bumps during the application process, they will take care of everything. So with all that said, if you need life insurance, head to policygenius.com right now to get started. You could save 50% or more by comparing quotes. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. And you will with Policy Genius. That's my editorializing. Thank you very much to Policy Genius for sponsoring this episode. Now back to Carl. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We're, we're, we're jumping around a little bit, and I'm fine with that. I hope listeners are too. I'm going to try to get to like larger succinct points later on, but I want to kind of go with you on Solshire for a second, uh, because the there's the reports about Pochettino, there's, or not even reports, there's links to Pochettino, which I, I don't really think are true. I feel like everything I have read is that the board thus far, the people in the club are backing him, think he's still the right man. They have questions about maybe his like top, top ability, his high-end managerial ability, but I don't think he's going anywhere, but I am wondering then what he's doing with that backing. And it does seem to me, to your point about him being re- uh, restore- uh, restorative, restorative? I, feel, yep. I, I feel like I never know quite how to pronounce that when the British person says it first. But um, <laughs> like that approach does seem to be correct, or at least your interpretation of his approach is correct, not his approach. That like You look at that team against Spurs this weekend, and it felt like a team that had had a lot of fun in training. They're doing small-sided. They're doing you know uh, keeper wars, and, and it feels like stuff that they're doing to kind of keep the energy up, but aren't necessarily working on tactics. And I guess that's my impression of him, and I'm wondering if you think that's fair, that he's a manager who like is is challenging and kind of wants to do that old school Roy Keane thing but also wants them to have fun in training and isn't necessarily setting them up tactically to deal with stronger opposition especially defensive opposition yes uh, i think Solskjaer has definitely been a man of players and personalities rather than a playbook so um there's a fantastic football podcast out there called Stadia shout out to Stadia podcast uh, on there Ryan Hun one of the presenters said that if you look at all the, you know, in the Premier League, every sort of big team has a type of goal, right? So Manchester City have that sort of winger goal, pulls it back a low cross to a tap in around the six yard box, right? Uh, Liverpool can can either get you via Trent Alexander-Arnold's delivery or via Jordan Henderson's passes or via a long ball from Virgil van Dijk or Salah or Mane get something off the press and or Firmino drops deep. So Liverpool have like four types of goals they can score. Tom Hotspur have Harry Kane shooting. Harry Kane is a very particular type of shot. Also, Harry Kane has that dropping deep and playing over to Son. So they've got two. Arsenal are now developing this sort of passing out the back technique. So, you know, most of the top six clubs have a type of goal, whereas the type of goal for Manchester United is a penalty. <laughs> which, which I guess is some people have taken to mean that they're just getting favoritism from the refs. What would you draw or what would you make of that? Uh, I, I feel like the... 
My takeaway would be that it's a lot of individual effort then leading to those penalties, which again shows you that it's individuals maybe making up the plays and not necessarily a unified approach. You are correct, my friend. All I right. think there I think there I think there is a lot of individual quality there. So you've got Marcus Rashford and, and Anthony Marshall who are two uh, without being too American, they're two, you know, franchise players. There are mm-hmm. two players you can reasonably build a European competition competing side out of if you had one of those players in your team and you've got two. So, uh, you know, let them do that thing. You play Marshall up front, you play Rashford out wide. That works quite well because not only are they very good in their own right, but if you play them in that sort of composition, they cover up each other's weaknesses. So Martial's hold-up play covers up um, Rashford's weakness there and Rashford's superior dribbling ability and the more direct drip, um, pace covers up Martial's sometimes reluctance to run in straight lines. So that's good. Um, you've also got Paul Pogba, who Paul Pogba and uh, Martial have a really good relationship. So Martial knows that when Pogba's on the ball, if Martial runs from outside to in, in a sort of banana motion, um, he can normally get onto a Paul Pogba ball. And also Paul Pogba is one of the very few Manchester United players who isn't afraid to make a difficult pass. Uh, Bruno really, really helps because he, uh, again, has a really unconventional passing style. So he makes difficult passes as well. So that's that's good. And if you if you leave those really, really smart players on the pitch for long enough, something might click because they're all smart enough to do stuff. But also there are games where it's not going to click. And then all you have is pot shots or dribbling in and around the penalty area, which means your next best option is either maybe you can stab something in from a free kick or a corner or you get a penalty. Last season, it worked out very well because you had a lot of penalties due to changes in rules and due to some very clever footballing play from Bruno. But that is going to balance out eventually. And Manchester United need a plan B. They need a set goal. And they don't have that. And I don't see any evidence of that being coached. I don't believe I've ever been in a situation where I could ask Ole Gunnar Solskjaer a question, at least not in the last decade or so. Uh, that is not the case for you. I'm wondering how intense is he in person? Because to me, he doesn't necessarily seem capable of the hairdryer treatment, so to speak. <laughs> but that might just be because of the baby face, which is increasingly less baby, but whatever. Does he get loud? Does he get in players' faces? Or is that not the vibe he's going for? Uh, there, There's a very good clip from before the project restart game so uh, the early half of last season where he was reprimanding jesse lingard and he says something you know jesse jesse you lose the ball one more time and you'll be effing off um so he, there is there is some mm-hmm. brass uh bollocks to him can i say bollocks i've said bollocks i'm sorry sure. <laughs> um there is some, there's a brass neck to him there, there is some aggro to him uh he's got a very genteel press conference demeanor for the most part uh, he does get quite spiky at times. Uh, something I found quite interesting is he does tend to get spiky when former players or people in his peer group say things about him. Hmm. Uh, and I find that quite interesting. Whether, you know, sometimes it, it, it's spiky and you're like, okay, all right, you, you're, you're a man with backbone. And other times he gets mad and you're like, no, you're a substitute teacher. Um, I did really, really enjoy it when he patted Mourinho's head when Manchester United beat. Tottenham Hotspur last season, which of course came to pass on last yeah. Sunday, where Marino made a deliberate point to pat his head back, of course. Um, well, like, that's my question. Like, what is he, is he the type to sort of like chuckle at that and be like, well played, fair play? Or is that going to make him angry? Is he going to like be out for blood the next time they play and be desperate to win? Like, is that his approach? I'm not sure. And, and here's the really troubling thing. I don't think that will change anything too much. Mm-hmm. And I, I, and that's 
a very weird thing to say about a football manager. There are certain football managers where you can tell when they're heated or angry or when they're doing something different due to something else. You know, mm. there's that very, very interesting face Jurgen Klopp pulls when his team is a couple of goals down, where he looks as if he's got like a kernel of corn stuck in his back tooth uh, and he's trying to get out with his tongue. Yep. And there's like that bit. Uh, Mauricio Pochettino is a very much an emotional manager and you can see how he like he he's very good at generating good emotion and getting players to outperform themselves when they're in a very good moment and then when uh, man, when football players cross him he's very good at going more or less you're dead to me you know Toby Alvaro, Danny Rose uh, for a brief period of time Eric Dyer. when they cross Pochettino they were out whereas you can see Solskjaer going, I don't fancy you anymore. You can go, like he did to Alexis Sanchez, which was a, a pretty good sort of, we're moving on from you. But I don't see him doing that from game to game or differently because I don't think, I I really don't think he has, a, I think he has a plan B in terms of we'll play three at the back or we'll play, we'll try a diamond. But I don't think he has like a, a different gear, if that makes sense. It does. It does. You mentioned uh, Mauricio Pochettino a moment ago. I said earlier I'm not uh, putting much stock into those rumors about him being in conversations, Manchester United reaching out or considering reaching out. Are you putting stock in those? No, not yet. All right. Uh, I, I, I've, I've been hurt before. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone, anyone listen to this podcast, uh, you can look through the Athletic archives. And before I wrote about Southampton, I worked for the Athletic on a freelance basis. This is when we first started doing uh, podcast appearances. And I, I did write when Solskjaer was made permanent manager. And I did. I weighed up all the pros and cons. And there is a paragraph where one of the cons is just Mauricio Pochettino. <laughs> Well, so, all right, so if we're not putting much stock in them yet, what do you think could be the breaking point for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Because, like, with David Moyes, I think it was always a, okay, you are mathematically eliminated from Europe, and therefore we don't have to pay you as much, we will sack you. It feels like it takes big moments. With Jose Mourinho, I, I, I do still put a little bit of, like, faith in the argument that maybe he wasn't backed enough and could have done more. I also remember how negative things seemed to be with that squad, with the club at the time. What do you think it takes for Solskjaer to finally get the axe or to really be on the hot seat? I, I, I would exp- – well, here's the thing. Uh, this is why I make all these ex- exhalation noises. Mm-hmm. So many of the conversations you have about Manchester United – I like United, the exhalation noises, by the way. So like many, they so they many convey com- your emotional state, and I appreciate it. So many conversations I have about Manchester United have this sort of caveat of a well-structured club or a t- football club that has a very clear forward plan would be doing X. But of course, the tacit belief when I say that is Manchester United are not a well-structured club and Manchester United don't have a forward plan. So uh, a well-structured plan, a well-structured football club that knows what it's doing would probably remove Solskjaer now. Mm-hmm. Right. You've just lost 6-1 at home. The transfer window's closing. All of your top six, right? All the top six rivals have retooled. There's also a couple of toxic rivals behind you who are chasing you. You need to get some form of rejuvenation quickly and at the moment the only real way match is not going to get better is everyone gets fit and then maybe you can finish either third or fourth mm-hmm. under these current circumstances i think a more ruthless football club would be removing Solskjaer now and putting in a brand new manager i don't think that's going to happen because i don't think manchester united are that sort of ruthless i think what's more likely to happen is if you look at that fixture list so for the rest of october manchester united have to play uh it's Newcastle, Chelsea, and Arsenal, while there are also games against uh, Red Bull. I want to say Red Bull Leipzig, and there's a game against Paris Saint-Germain in the Champions League. There, 
by all rights, Manchester United could be quite a way away off the Champions League spaces in the league and quite a ways away of Champions League knockout qualification in the comp- in the competition. Um, come the end of November, Manchester United would have played Southampton away from home and you would hope they're in at least one European competition spot in the league, but they could be in neither. This episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Manscaped. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Rhymes always help. Uh, the Manscaped engineering team just perfected the greatest nether region hair trimmer ever created, the Lawnmower 3.0. The premium Lawnmower 3.0 is waterproof, includes an LED light, and is made with advanced skin-safe trademark technology, which reduces nicks and cuts on your delicates. That is certainly ideal. Nobody needs nicks and cuts down there. You can get this trimmer inside their Perfect Package 3.0, which also includes the Manscaped Crop Preserver, which is a deodorant, Crop Reviver, which is a toning spray. Both are super practical and smell pretty good as well. Plus, for a limited time, when you order the Perfect Package kit, you get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag and the Manscaped Anti-Chafing Boxer Briefs. Manscaped are really doing a very good job of solving a lot of things you don't want. You don't want nicks and cuts. You've got the Lawnmower 3.0. You don't want chafing and bunch Again, the boxers come in handy. They have optimal temperature control with their crop cooling technology while keeping your pride and joy supported. The waistband is also super elastic to reduce chafing and rubbing, as I said, and they look pretty good as well. Always a plus. If you'd like to see what Manscaped have on offer and try it for yourself, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code TSS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code TSS20. From the moose to the caboose, always use the right tools for the job, say Manscaped. Uh, Thank you very much to them. Now back to more slightly depressing Manchester United talk with Carl just to clarify, you are dead on. Uh, Newcastle, then PSG away, uh, both those away, then home to Chelsea, Leipzig, and Arsenal. That's a challenging That's a fixture list, I'll say. That is a gauntlet. Oh, it doesn't get any better. Then Istanbul BB away, and then Everton uh, away as well. So West Brom at home on November 21st, they can look forward to. Yeah. Okay, cool. So- sounds good. Um, I-, I did want to stay on Poch for a moment, though. So we've said... We don't really put much stock in the rumors. Uh, I, I am with you that I think it takes a like massive falling apart for them to really seriously consider sacking Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. That said, for MLS fans out there, I said the exact same thing about Ben Olsen and DC United, and here we are. So you never know. But the other interesting thing uh, I heard on another podcast I was listening to, which I would encourage our listeners not to do, don't listen to other ones, you're fine here, uh, was that <laughs> Pochettino coming in, there are not as many players in in the current senior squad that really fit what he wants to do. I think uh, the person whose name rhymes with Sam Tai was saying that it was maybe only four people, maybe five players in the entire team that he could think of that really would f- suit Pochettino's approach. Do you agree with that, or do you think there's more? Uh, now, this is a good question, and this is something I would like to talk about. So... Dean Henderson... Is the implication that you didn't want to talk about anything else we've talked about? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, I think, and this is, this is off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. And this is off the top of my head, the head that I'm removing my athletic journalist hat and the one where I'm putting someone who plays too much FIFA hat on. Uh Uh, I think Pochettino would probably use Dean Henderson as the starting goalkeeper. 
uh, the fullbacks would be really, really interesting because Pochettino at one point in time was regarded as a fullback whisperer. So um, Wan-Bissaka is a player that I could see Pochettino using for a bit, but also going, mm, no, uh, I don't think he'd lose, he's, he would use Luke Shaw. Uh, I could see him, the centre-backs would be really interesting of all the current centre-backs right now. It would, again, admit, he might have to start yeah. using the young ones like um, Tendon and whatnot. Uh, I think Harry Maguire would probably persist as sort of a Vertonghen role for a bit, but that could be huge revamp there. A lot of it would depend on if Eric Bailly ever can maintain any form of fitness. Uh, I think he'd persist with Fred and use Fred in a similar way to Sissoko. Um, I think McTominay would be... Uh, he's not even as talented as Harry Winks on the half turn, so maybe not. Uh, I think he would definitely get a lot out of Paul Pogba and they would enjoy each other a lot. Uh, similar to Bruno, uh, he'd get a lot of Martial and Rashford, but Ma- Anthony, Mar- uh, Anthony Martial, um, Martial and Rashford are two very different strikers to to Harry Kane, and I think both of them are more like a son. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mason Greenwood, he'd, he'd have an absolute joy with Mason Greenwood. So there are more players. Okay, why but do you of, think he would go Dean Henderson? That- why would he go yeah. Henderson over David Gea? Do you think uh, Dean Henderson is very, very, very gobby? And has a, a degree of self belief. Uh, this is really mean. And please take, re, listener, take this as more of a reflection on uh, where they are in the points of their career. I think Dean Henderson's self belief is at a point where it can only increase, whereas David De Gea's self confidence in a place where you can only really restore it to what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one, one thing goalkeepers are a bit like uh, boxers in that you can just take too many shots and just not be the same anymore and I think Pochettino would be someone who go you know what Dea, you'll be my cup one and thank you for your service and you'd be very important as an ambassador person whereas Henderson I'm trusting you now can you be the leader of my vanguard and mm-hmm. Henderson will probably relish that uh, so for American listeners, Gabi would be inclined to talk in a loud or offensive manner, uh, which is <laughs> a good thing. Uh, I think David De Gea did try to get a little bit Gabi with Luke Shaw uh, this weekend against Spurs. There's been that video of him sort of wondering why Luke Shaw is vacating space and Luke Shaw is not really listening. This also, in my mind, connects to Jose Mourinho when he was still at Man United saying, like, basically, he has to do Luke Shaw's thinking for Luke Shaw. And yet this is a player that I, I was excited about. I think a lot of people were excited about when he moves from Southampton. Louis van Hall based his entire attacking approach around Luke Shaw, if you believe what Louis van Hall said. What do you make of the present situation with Luke Shaw? Was he, like, sort of just elevated above his status? Is it the Peter Principle, or has something gone drastically wrong for him? He broke his leg. Yeah, I mean, well, it, but there have always been there have always been the fittest concerns uh, to me, and then it's oh, but like I never doubted his positional play and his attacking play. I doubt those things now. I think let me <laughs> let me try and be uh, Luke Shaw is is as you may have written read in some of my articles. I I, I tend to like dropping in a spreadsheet or a graph or or an analytical chart mm-hmm. to describe a player. I'm like you know this is how a player plays, and when you bring out the chart, dun dun dun. Um, and what's been quite interesting for me is Luke Shaw on charts and spreadsheets looks a lot better than he is on the pitch. 
Uh, he has really good defensive quality. Well, he has a decent one-on-one quality. He gets forward to a regular amount. He can put in some crosses. Uh, uh, this is if you just look at the spreadsheets. Mm. And then you look at him on the pitch. Uh, and uh, one thing that I've noticed when you watch Luke Shaw is he does a little hop before he crosses the ball, which is it shouldn't be a problem. And it probably isn't a problem when you're 18 years of age. When you're 25 years of age, that's a tell. And that makes you that makes you really easy to cut out, right? Wait for Luke Shaw to do a hop, then he's going to cross. Dot 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 dot. And I think what's happened for Luke Shaw is, um, whether it's accidental design or internal or external issues, I think the leg break took a lot out of his to remove maybe two or three rungs of the ladder of his potential ceiling. And then I think he, you know, there is that, you know, at some point you're an 18 year old wonder kid, and then suddenly you're 30. Um, and I think what happened with Luke Shaw is during that time he was injured and or struggling with fitness and or operating under a manager who did not like him for reasons. I think Luke Shaw never really worked on a certain amount of his game. And now he's 25 years of age, which, again, is baffling to think he's still only 25. He's 25 years of age. He is getting some game time, but a lot of the mistakes that were that were sort of present when he was 18 are still there now when he's 25. Um, what's particularly interesting is um, when I watched Manchester United play against Crystal Palace at the, the very first Premier League game, it wasn't just Luke Shaw that De Gea was shouting at. He was more, De Gea was more or less playing FIFA in his organisation and yelling at his back line. And his back line, for reasons, just could not cope. Could not cope with his orders, could not listen to him or could not get themselves in in line to protect the hair and offer the hair what I would consider basic protections for a goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. Now this w- this was less of a problem two or three seasons ago because the hair was a goalkeeping god and he could just he just bail them out. And I think what's happened now is the hair's become a little bit long in the tooth and the defenders can't quite and the defenders maybe, you know, whether or not they can help it or not, perhaps tune him out a little bit. And the hair has also lost the step physically. So You've got this person who's been yelling at you for X amount of time and that you're like, okay, yeah, okay, David. All right, don't worry, you can sort it out. And David's like, no, I can't. You, I'm, I'm old now. You have to help me, um, which has caused this great collapse. I never I never really thought about the commonalities of like, because I still play like adult amateur soccer, certainly not quite at the level of the Premier League, but we, I have had those moments where the goalkeeper just won't stop yelling and mm-hmm. you do definitely stop listening. And then eventually you get somebody turning around and screaming at them. It never really occurred to me that that would extend to the professional game, but of course it would. If you have a person, especially with no crowd noise, constantly screaming at you. So it's very audible and very telling. I can see a scenario in which you would stop paying attention or just sort of be like, yeah, yeah, I know you're a goalkeeper. You're always worried about everything. I got that. And you wouldn't maybe be as attuned to what he's actually saying. And I could definitely see that causing problems. So I think that makes a lot of sense. But then the question is, like, where does that come from? Because if it was working sort of in the past, I know your point being that he's gotten a little bit older and maybe it's not as effective. But that still, to me, means that defenders are switching off. They're not taking it as seriously. The coaching staff isn't really dealing with that. And to some extent, I feel like, and maybe this is what you're getting at with talking about hypotheticals with Pochettino is more fun is that with every every issue with Manchester United, it feels like you can find the problem and there's a solution, but then that solution also has very similar situations to the problem itself, and you end up, when you solve one, you create another problem. It's like a Greek myth, Manchester United, right now. Oh, yeah, it's a massive Gordian knot, and you know the Gordian knot was solved by Alexander the Great cutting the thing in half. 
So that's what we need. Just I, 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 I'm not quite at you should change the manager. Mm. <laughs> I'm not quite at it. I'm not quite at this is too much of a mess and you should just blow it up and start again. Mm-hmm. I am saying this is a mess. Yeah. And at the moment, the only way I can see things get better is everyone gets match fit because you know we, we should also consider you know Paul Pogba had COVID. He barely had, he, he, when he went on into the first international duty, uh, and he barely had any time to do preseason. There was 35 days between the Europa League semi-final defeat and the game against Crystal Palace. So a lot of these players are nowhere near, you know, match fit. Um, I'll, you know, and a key thing about matches tonight is they need three or four players to behave at maybe. Manchester United are really interesting because at any point in time, Manchester United need three players to constantly do an eight out of ten performance to cover up their other three players who are doing a four out of ten performance. And then I do feel like you get the occasions in which some of those four out of tens become the eight out of tens, and so you can never quite know for sure who's no. going to give you what on what day. No, and that's the really annoying thing is you, you when you when you see that lineup, you know who's not going to be able to give you more than a six out of ten. Yeah. And again, you go into this further. It's not necessarily because these players are bad take the Luke Shaw example. Luke Shaw, while he has some faults and, and flaws, it's not necessarily that he's bad. It's also that there is no one who, there's no one really there who's complementary to his skills right now. Um, another example, Aaron Wambasaka. Aaron Wambasaka is the best lockdown defender in the Premier League. Categorically, he's the best defender at a 1v1. If you are in front of him and you have the ball and you want to get Aaron Wambasaka, there is no one harder. But, Teams are figuring that out. So, and you know, any good scouting report, if you're like, oh, Aaron, you know, if you're a good scout or you're a good football manager, you go, here's Aaron Wambasaka. He's really good at one v ones. Do not let him get under one v one. If you're running against Aaron Wambasaka, have someone else to so double up on him. Or you say, if you're against Aaron Wambasaka, he's really good at one v ones. Attack the other wing. Attack Luke Shaw. Or you say to Aaron Wambasaka, here's Aaron Wambasaka. He's really good at one v ones. Press him when he's on the ball. If you had a bet now. Wan-Bissaka's great qualities in defense aren't, but, you know, inefficiencies in going forward don't make Aaron Wan-Bissaka a bad player. They make him a bad player in a team where there's no one offering protection at right wing. Mm-hmm. And that comes because Mason Greenwood's not a right winger. He's a striker. Um, and you can see how this constantly builds. Paul Pogba's not a bad player. He just doesn't particularly enjoy defending. That's not a problem if you have a proper defensive midfield partner next to him. The problem with that is you have Nemanja Matic, who's a good defensive midfielder, but slow. Or Fred, who's a half-decent defensive midfielder, but not strong enough. Or Scott McTominay, who I still can't quite figure out what Scott McTominay is. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing. There, there are very few good partnerships on that team, which means you're constantly relying on in, like individuals to conjure moments of brilliance to make up for the organizational chaos elsewhere. Hey, everybody. This is Taylor interrupting one last time to let you know about today's sponsor, HelloFresh. HelloFresh allows you to get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. It lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. I really do appreciate the delivery. I really appreciate that I don't then have to interact with people. Uh, I like all of the variety of ingredients and the different entrees that are available. One of my favorite things remains the recipes themselves, both the ease that they allow for when it comes to the cooking process with the pictures and the step-by-step instructions, but then also they're just good recipes that look quite nice. My wife and I have a big binder of them that we keep in our cookbook area that we can pull out if we need to recreate one, and we often do because, again, their meal's quite good. 
And you can take some solace in the fact that their meals are also more sustainable. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients, so you're not overbuying. You're not uh, using more than you need to. The packaging it comes in uh, is almost entirely made up uh, from recyclable or already recycled content. And they offset their operations, travel, and shipping emissions. Their carbon footprint is 25% lower than store-bought grocery-made meals. Nobody needs carbon footprints expanding as they try to make their dinner. You want those going down, and that's where HelloFresh can help. You can go to HelloFresh.com slash ADTSS and use the code ADTSS to get a total of $80 off across five boxes, including free shipping on your first box. One more time, that's HelloFresh.com slash ADTSS, 80TSS. Use code 80TSS to get a total of $80 off across five boxes, including free shipping on your first box. Thank you very much to HelloFresh for sponsoring today's episode. Now back one final time to Karlenka. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're going to talk about players a little bit more, and then we'll talk about the, the director of football position, which should make you even more sad. But with Paul Pogba, I think this is a distinction that is important to me. I think it is. I'm, I, I don't know. I, I'm curious to hear what you, what you would say. But there is an idea that like he's being played out of position, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer isn't using him the right way. Do you think it's the case that he is being used in the wrong spot? Or do you think it's the case more so that he doesn't have the cast around him that he needs? As in, could if they did have a better defensive midfielder, do you think Pogba is playing the exact right position? Or do you think that needs to change a little bit to get the best out of him? I think it's both. I, that this is, I wrote this article last week on Paul Pogba, which is well, basically I said, we, we never properly grasp what Paul Pogba is in England. Um, so I think Manchester United bought Paul Pogba expecting him to be the entirety of Juventus's midfield. So yeah. when Paul Pogba was at his best at Juventus, he had Perlo to do passes from deep and to regulate games. Marquisio offered legs. Blaise Matuidi offered some sort of defensive output. So Pogba could just be Pogba. And Vidal in there too, right? You got Vidal yeah. hacking people and doing the defensive work as well. That doesn't hurt. Yeah, which is great, right? Paul Pogba could, you know, you went off and played his games and you had Antonio Conte go, hey, Paul Pogba. Do whatever Paul Pogba is very good at, which yeah. is, you know, make fantastic passes, arrive late in the box, um, use your t- close control to beat one or two, one person off a dribble and get past the man and then release fantastic passes to either score yourself or to release people around you. Paul Pogba at Juventus didn't really have to defend that much. But he, Paul Pogba comes to England. Um, his midfield partners in his first season were Marouane Fellaini. I mean, that's the dream. And uh, sometimes and Herrera, which that that's a bit of a mess. Uh, and then you keep looking at his midfield partners. You've got Fred, you get Scott McTominay, you get the Man United. When Paul Pogba had his best chunk of time at Manchester United, that was when he was in a 4-3-3 operating on the left. And you had the Man United to be the defensive shield and to do the nasty tackling. And you had and Herrera to do the shuttling and move the ball up and down. And Pogba, you know, later I was into the box, getting quite a few assists. Um, and, you know, not really attack, not really defending, but just garnishing games. And I think the problem with a lot of stuff with Pogba is there is this expectation that he will dominate a game and do everything where he's always been better 
just adding sprinkles of quality. Um, and this is and, uh, one another annoying thing is Pogba in a very English style and a very, very English way of doing anything. I don't think Pogba's ever worked hard enough to deserve being given the luxury mm-hmm. to play in the Paul Pogba way at Manchester United. Of course, Pogba will respond if you've never given me the chance or the personnel to do it. Um, so it's this sort of cat and mouse scenario. There it is again. Yeah, it's it's always the when you think you have a solution, there's always the counter argument that weighs it out. So let's go with a thing that will maybe make you slightly happier. Maybe uh, we're gonna go uh, hypothetical fantasy land, Carl. Let's say Manchester United finally decide they do need a director of football, and it's Carl Anka. Uh, you wrote uh, earlier in the week a proper of director of football. We'll take one look at Manchester United and say this will take half a billion dollars or half a billion and five years to fix from top to bottom minimum. Uh, and you are not going to interfere on X, Y, Z. So with that in mind, like, what do you think you would do first? What do you think are the major issues that need sorting uh, in your opinion? Right. Uh, first things first, I'll say this takes five. This takes half a billion, five years, and you're not allowed to interfere in contract extensions. You're not allowed to interfere in transfers, negotiations, and you're not allowed to interfere with what I do in the academy. That's my first thing. All right. Second thing, uh, so I, I'm in charge with player trading, who comes in and who comes out, and the entire youth plan as well. Um, the transfer window is currently closed. I would uh, have a very serious conversation with Oligar Sancho and say, what do you want to do? I don't think you should be the manager anymore. I also think you might be very important just to have a round. That's going to be a fun conversation for him. So then, yes. so then are you in that, in this hypothetical world, are you waiting to see what he says or are you sort of, is that your introductory conversation too? So we're going to make you a club ambassador. We want you around, but uh, this is my friend Mauricio Pochettino. He'd like a word. Yes. Okay. Yeah, essentially, uh, and and when I say Mauricio Pochettino, it might not necessarily be Mauricio Pochettino. Mm-hmm. That might, it might just necessarily be a different manager. Gotcha. Uh, I, I would most likely bring in a different manager. Uh, I most likely go to Paul Pogba and say, "What do you want to do?" In terms of say, where do you want to play or where do you want to be playing? Uh, yeah, where do you want to be playing? And I say, Paul, I'm going to build this again from the ground up. Uh, you are 27 years of age. The next contract you sign is going to be your last big one do you want to go to real madrid and he'll say yes (laughs) if he says if he says yes i'll shake his hand and i'll go Uh thank you very much goodbye yeah i'll turn around and go to bruno fernandez and say are you ready for this to be your team Mm -hmm. bruno fernandez says yes or no i will then turn to anti Martial and marcus rashford and say you two have to protect each other (laughs) through whatever happens (laughs) and also say uh, for the most part i'm going to build around you three um, protect each other and we'll do what we can I'll also talk to Mason Greenwood and say I'm going to find someone to look after you as well and stop you from causing interesting things in Iceland mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and I'd have a very serious conversation with, with Harry Maguire and say Harry you've had a very interesting summer in Greece it's not your fault but I think I might have to take the captaincy away from you I was actually going to ask you about that earlier, how much you care about the captaincy, how big of an impact you think that has, especially when it comes to Harry Maguire and his lack of performances, at least in the The, last game. The captaincy should not... This is the really interesting thing about uh, a number of things in sport. And I think the way we talk about sport and competition has so much in common with old Greek and Roman 
myths and prophecy that there are certain things that should not matter, but they do because people choose to believe they matter. So the captaincy should not matter. Um, depending on what country you're from, the, the captaincy doesn't matter. But there are certain countries and there are certain football teams and football football entities where the captaincy does matter. Uh, I don't particularly believe the number seven shirt at Manchester United is cursed, but if Antonio Valencia is going, I don't want to wear the number seven anymore, then I have to take the number seven shirt seriously mm-hmm. and I have to take the aura that goes with it very seriously. So, I mean, thank you, Edison Cavani, for taking <laughs> that. Um, so these are the sort of conversations. I'd say, yeah. And I tell, you, I tell you, Harry Maguire, I'm going to take this off you until January because through no fault of your own, I think you're still quite shook up with what happened um, yeah. over your summer. But we'll, So we'll take you out the firing line for a little bit and we'll do this. I'll also say to whatever manager comes in, um, like have at it, but perhaps don't play us such a high line. Great. And then whoever manager does that, I'll say you do what you need to do. Bear in mind, we, we've got Champions League. Try and get through to the knockout stages. We can afford one year in Europa League competition and one year not in European competition whatsoever, but we eventually need to get back in the Champions League spaces. Manchester United need to turn a profit of 65 million every single time. It, as the, That's the way their loan works out. And I'll make that very apparent as to whoever the new manager is. I'm assuming whoever I bring in as a new manager will understand that and will work pretty hard to get us into fourth or fifth. So that's good. Then I'm turning to the to the academy. Um, I'm making some very, very serious phone calls with teams in Europe and teams in England and basically saying, do any of you want to be clubs where we send our academy players out on loan? Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I want to sort that out in a more cohesive system. I'll talk to whoever the manager is and go, right, what system are you playing? Okay, good. You, you and you go off into clubs that are playing in my system mm-hmm. so you can come back. Um, which is, again, something that shouldn't sound radical, but is not something that's currently being organised at Manchester United. Uh, I then go off to the medical department and say, what, why, why, why? Why? Just why? <laughs> yeah, why, why are these players from these countries and these backgrounds getting injured more so than these players? Um, Wait, what, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I'm, I'm not familiar with that. I cannot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not on this podcast, not right now. <laughs> All right. Uh, but yeah, uh, that there is something for your listeners to think about. All right, that's that's pretty fascinating. Uh, in the meantime, you've given us lots of uh, time of your time. I don't want to take up too much more, but we've talked about Solskjaer. We've talked about some of the players. I wanted to ask about the sort of board, the higher ups, for a second, because there's all the talk about director of football. You were asked about that in the athletic Q and A. I think your your succinct. Uh, response to is the board aware of the fan frustration? Are they working to improve the situation? Is do you ever he- have you ever heard the phrase they hear you but they're not listening? Good response there. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to run an idea by you, and I, I genuinely am interested if you think it's valid or if you disagree entirely. But my read on things is that the board are not stupid. I think they make some questionable decisions, some dumb decisions. Uh, I think that they aren't making decisions out of spite. I think they basically think they know what they're doing. And they do from a business side, not from a football side. So a small example, the criticism of not hiring a director of football, there are a lot of complaints about long-term vision. You don't have a long-term vision when it comes to the players you're acquiring the way that you're acquiring them. The response I've seen in this window has been like, well, we scouted out uh, TELUS for 18 months. We've been looking at this guy for a year. We're going to wait till next year to sign that player because we recognize the value of him then versus now. And I think that's all probably correct and, and is stuff they're doing. 
But that is a very certain way of looking at a plan of like, well, no, we watched this guy for 18 months. So we've done it long term. To some extent, the analogy I would go with is like a fire analogy. My building is in fire. My building is on fire. There's a cat inside. I feel like a director of football runs inside, gets the cat, runs back out. The board of Manchester United evaluates the severity of the fire, conducts a study on the ideal routes of ingress and egress. They ensure the safety certificates are all up to date. And then they overbid on the cat by like 20 million or something like that. Like, I just feel like their <laughs> idea of what a plan is, is fundamentally different from what a modern director of football would see as a plan. Is that a yes. fair summary of things? In fact, a director of football would make sure the building has fire extinguishers. That would be sprinklers, good. <laughs> so the fire wouldn't occur in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like a, re- a really like a really good way you can look at um, directors of football. And this is the really complicated thing about director of football is even though it's a term that is often used in football, um, different clubs and have different types of director of footballs with different responsibilities and whatnot. So yeah, while I, I'd always describe it as they take care of the medium to long term, but like a really good, like a really, really good example of something Manchester United do that isn't necessarily bad, but doesn't happen if you have a director of football is their approach to contract extensions. So Manchester United, like many football clubs, don't want anyone going out for free, right? They don't really like making losses on players they have. You don't, you don't want to bring someone in for 20 million and have them sell for 10 million, even though that's not quite how transfers work. Blah, blah, blah. So um, Manchester United are quite good at extending contract uh, options and making sure certain players, regardless of whether they want it or not, are able to be sold. And that makes sense from a spreadsheet point of view, right? Uh, you don't want you don't want you even if you want Phil Jones gone, you want to get at least 10 million for Phil Jones. So you make sure his contract is is ticking along. So he's not able to go for free for too cheap. But also, if you're not going to play Phil Jones, which is true, Phil Jones is not in the Champions League squad. Yep. He will not play Champions League football. Um, you're never really going to get more than 10 million for Phil Jones anyway. So why have you extended Phil Jones's contract until 2023? And then on top of that, with the contract extension, usually means a salary bump. So then you're paying yeah. him more, which makes them even less yeah. desirable yeah. to clubs. And you, you can see how the very good business sense of spreadsheet clashes with how football works and this is this is not just a Manchester United problem this is a problem across all of football like a a large problem of football is you've got people who are very very good at economics and business brushing up against people that dropped out of school at the age of 16 and both of them are very smart and very good at two very different worlds that clash together frequently Uh, as we're recording this it's just been announced the Premier League is going to operate on a pay-per-view model for certain games in October, and they're going to charge games for £15, which again seems to be this very interesting, you know, a very smart, pers- a smart person at the Premier League who knows business and finance has gone, you know what, 15 quid per game, that's a good idea because that's how much the cinema ticket has gone. Whereas you've got football people on the other side going, are you mad? Yeah, that sounds ludicrous to me. And that's, that is the, the great push and pull about football at a particular high level because you, it is very, very rare. Someone has both the requisite knowledge of economics and business and has also the knowledge of football. And if they are, they're not going to really work for uh, organizations that are disorganized. They're going to work with the smartest people. It's no surprise you've got so many smart people working at Liverpool and so many smart people working at Red Bull. And why so many smart people are going, you know what? I'm going to sit out Manchester United for now. So I'm 
I'm kind of keenly aware that this has probably not been the most fun for Manchester United fans <laughs> to listen to, but I will say this. I'm not even going to ask you, like, reasons for optimism, anything you're excited about, because I feel like we'd be reaching even if there are some things in there, which there probably are. But I'll just say this. I feel like it's one of those things where talking out some of the issues and getting a better idea of the problems in some ways does make me feel better, even if I don't think they're necessarily going to be resolved. But at least sort of understanding some of the rots at the heart of the issue does make me feel a bit more in control, even though I have absolutely nothing to do with the running of the club or anything about it. So that is my that is my sort of concluding summary for where I am with this one. Carl, I hope this hasn't stressed you out too much. No, I'm quite – this has helped me a lot. I'm going to listen back to it and write three or four articles. There we go. All right. Well, then I will leave you to that, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk uh, all things Manchester United with me today. Okay. Thank you. You have a great day. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.